to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we will be discussing Amnesty International uh, refusing to designate Julian Assange as a prisoner of conscience. Also going to be discussing uh, liberal corporate media whitewashing right wing uh, Supreme Court justices. And we're going to be marking the International Day Against Homophobia, Transphobia and Biphobia. And as always, at 320 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls before we can move on. Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, we are living in a bizarro world in the U.S. right now, and it feels so upside down and topsy-turvy. Yahoo News reports that the Azov Regiment commander has reported that they've completed their task and wants to save the lives of his subordinates. That's the headline, which is suspect enough, and I'll get to why in a minute, but the source of the commander's interview is a Telegram post on the neo-Nazi regiment's account. And if you go to the Telegram account, which Yahoo News helpfully provides a link to, you can clearly see the Nazi insignia of the Azov Battalion in the Avatar. Just to remind you why we call the Azov Battalion neo-Nazis, they use a variation of the Wolf's Angel insignia, which was used by divisions of the Waffen-SS and Wehrmacht, the original Nazis, during World War II. It's that capital N-looking symbol with a third arm through the middle. And recall that I told you back in March that USA Today reported that there was a neo-Nazi problem in Ukraine back in 2015. Only they just called them Nazis because the drill sergeant they interviewed named Alex called himself and at least half of the members of his unit Nazis. But Yahoo News reports on the Azov Battalion as if they're a legitimate military unit and makes no mention of their Naziness whatsoever. And even worse, if it can be worse, what makes this article so ridiculous is that it frames the surrender of the neo-Nazi unit as if it were some kind of victory. What Yahoo News is reporting on is that the neo-Nazi battalion that trapped civilians inside the Azovstal steel plant for weeks, just like they did in other areas in Mariupol, have finally laid down their arms and surrendered to the Russian army. They lost. But Yahoo News and a whole slew of other U.S. media outlets have framed the loss as something other than a loss for Ukraine's fascist volunteer fighters. The Washington Post says Ukraine ends Mariupol battle, evacuates Azovstal steel plant fighters. Axios says Ukraine ends combat mission at Mariupol steel plant. USA Today's headline reads Mariupol fighters fulfilled mission at plant. No one just comes out and says that the Azov Battalion that the U.S. and its allies have poured billions of dollars worth of armaments into have lost their siege of Mariupol. They claim instead that their mission was to amass a bunch of weapons the Russians can't use without training and leave them there. That makes no sense. This is all a lie, and there really is no other way to say that the U.S. media is lying to cover for Nazis than to just say the U.S. media is lying to cover for Nazis, this time to cover up the loss by their new favorite Nazis. And you can't make this stuff up. It is that wild. 
And then I couldn't help but be taken aback by the fact that there is a baby formula shortage in this country. But I'm honestly more surprised by how people have responded to it. Abbott Nutrition, one of the largest formula manufacturers in the U.S., has reached an agreement with the government to reopen one of its closed factories and increase production. Abbott shut down its facility in Sturgis, Michigan, in February after several babies became ill after drinking their formula. Two of them died of bacterial infections right here in the U.S., y'all. The Justice Department filed a complaint against Abbott, alleging the factory failed to comply with quality and safety regulations. Now, Abbott and the government have agreed to a proposed settlement to resolve the complaint. It requires a third-party expert at the Michigan facility to help restart production and increase the formula supply safely. But The Intercept reports that Abbott Nutrition was implicated in a recently disclosed whistleblower document that claims that managers at the Sturgis plant falsified reports, released untested infant formula, and concealed crucial safety information from federal inspectors. The Intercept also reports that records show that the industry successfully mobilized against a 2014 proposal from the Food and Drug Administration to increase regular safety inspections of plants used to manufacture baby formula. The FDA proposed rules that would have kept baby formula manufacturing from being susceptible to contamination from salmonella and chronobacter sakazakai. I think I'm pronouncing that right. But those are the bacteria that led to this year's Sturgis plant shutdown. And after successfully avoiding implementing these additional safety protocols, what did Abbott Nutrition do with their $5 billion in savings? They bought back their own stock. In the meantime, people have been sharing around these homemade baby formula recipes that used to be pretty commonly prescribed by doctors in this country decades ago, the most popular of which is the evaporated milk corn syrup recipe. My mama actually used to feed me that when I was a little old baby. But it's been interesting to see that people are horrified at the potential of people feeding their babies corn syrup and have gone so far as to compare that to chain smoking and using lead paint while claiming that science has improved baby food from those dumb old days back then. I'm actually kind of appalled to find out that people don't know that corn syrup is actually an ingredient in most baby formula today. It's the main ingredient in a lot of baby formulas, actually. And parents aren't even told how much sugar is in manufactured baby formula because it isn't listed on a lot of baby formula labels. The people have been oddly more upset at the possibility that people will make their own formula using evaporated milk and Cairo syrup than they are that baby food manufacturers practically use the exact same recipe to monopolize baby formula manufacturing, price gouge their products for decades, refuse to allow safety standards to keep baby food from being contaminated with deadly bacteria, and will get away with all of it not even answering for the deaths of babies because of their greed-fueled negligence. People also are not clear that for poor people in this country, there's always been a baby food shortage because that formula is ridiculously expensive. Baby formula is kept behind lock and key in some stores in poor areas because people desperate to feed their babies but can't afford the formula, sometimes they're reduced to stealing it. 
Then those parents are arrested and their children are vulnerable to being removed from their parents. Imagine how much better off parents would be if they knew they could feed their babies with a few inexpensive ingredients they can get from the dollar store and add a few inexpensive things like vitamin drops and electrolyte infused water as a supplement until they can get baby formula. Watching people respond irrationally to a home recipe for baby formula being used that is literally the basis for nearly all manufactured baby formula in this country while ignoring the capitalist monopolization of baby formula manufacturing by literally three companies and the simultaneous demonization and dismissiveness of the criminalization of poor people and how they deal with their constant, consistent lack of access to baby formula shows me that people are more concerned with regular folks potentially feeding their kids small amounts of corn syrup than they are with the fact that capitalism is the cause of the baby formula shortage and the contamination of baby formula in the first place. People are literally more upset about corn syrup than they are about capitalism. Topsy-turvy times in the U.S. right now, indeed. Follow Luke Mon Nation on patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on, as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Mohamed Elmazi a U.K.-based freelance journalist and contributor to numerous outlets, including The Dissenter, Jacobin, The Canary, and Electronic Intifada. Mohammed, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. And Mohammed, uh, the human rights organization Amnesty International is uh, resisting some persistent calls to designate uh, journalist and WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange as a prisoner of conscience. And I think that this could be rather important uh, as uh, Julian Assange's extradition seems to be moving uh, closer and closer. And it's interesting because uh, Amnesty does recognize the fact that Assange is, quote, uh, arbitrarily detained in uh, the British high security prison, Belmarsh, and that his case represents a, quote, grave threat to press freedom. And so there there does seem to be an understanding in Amnesty International about the issues surrounding uh, uh, Julian Assange's case, Mohammed, but there uh, seems to be a hesitance to sort of formally give him this prisoner of conscience uh, designation. And so my first question is, uh, really in two parts. I mean, number one, what do you think the trepidation is to give this designation to Assange on the part of Amnesty International? And uh, two, why is this designation even important? Uh, yeah, that's uh, a good question. Uh, maybe, perhaps I'll, I'll, ask, I'll answer the, the second part first. The designation is important because of the level of uh, scrutiny it can bring to a case. It, it, when somebody is designated a prisoner of conscience, it elevates uh, their case in the wider media and in the public consciousness. Uh, and uh, in many cases, uh, uh, although it can be difficult to prove a causal link, uh, it has been associated with, uh, you know, 
not only increased resources dedicated to the case, but ultimately people being released. And I should say that Amnesty also explicitly say that the prosecution is politically motivated. So they say he's a target of a politically motivated prosecution, and that the prosecution is for his journalistic activities, and that should he be extradited, it would be, quote, devastating for press freedom and for the public in terms of the public's right to know. Uh, about what's going on in their societies and what their respective governments are doing. So they're pretty unequivocal in terms of their description of the case. As you say, they say he's arbitrarily detained as well, and that it, the, the prosecution represents a grave threat to press freedom. So given all of that and given all the other people, when you look at other people designated prisoners of conscience, uh, quite often before they've been uh, uh, tried, right? It's uh, sometimes when within the first few days of someone being detained, uh, you see many of these similar themes, targeting for people, uh, for their expression, things they've said. and. Um, uh, uh, journalists as well, journalists, editors, publishers uh, have received that designation. Now, um, why they're, they're, they're resisting is uh, a bit more difficult to answer. So there, there, there have been people who've noted that sometimes it seems that Amnesty finds it difficult to uh, designate somebody a prisoner of conscience uh, when they are say, in the United States or in the United Kingdom or an allied country. Uh, there is, a, I mean, for example, there have been those who've compared the case of Navalny and Assange in the sense that Navalny received prisoner conscious status pretty quickly. He's the uh, uh, Russian opposition figure, anti-corruption figure, uh, you know, who also has his own links to you know, members of, of the Russian elite, just those that are, are oppositional to Putin. And uh, even though he has, you know, uh, spoken at rallies with neo-fascists and, and referred to people from the Caucasus and immigrants as cockroaches else, uh, and so forth, uh, and this was even noted in the New York Times in 2011, he nonetheless received the designation. So uh, people have written, including at Le Monde Diplomatique, the uh, French uh, uh, weekly uh, publication, or sorry, monthly publication, that uh, if only Assange had been Navalny, then, then we'd have a very different kind of representation. So uh, there is a quote that from somebody else who used to be on the board of Amnesty, which might be helpful. There's a 2002 quote from an interview uh, in which uh, uh, Dr. Francis A. Boyle, who's an international law professor, uh, said, quote, if you're dealing with a human rights situation in a country that is at odds with the United States or Britain, it gets an awful lot of attention. Resources, man and woman power, publicity, you name it, they can throw whatever they want at it. But if it's dealing with violations of human rights by the United States, Britain, Israel, then it's like pulling teeth to get them to really do something on the situation. They might very reluctantly, and after an enormous amount of internal fighting and battles and pressures, but you know, it's not like the official enemies list, Boyle said. So um, it could just be uh, ideological or cognitive dissonance. We'd also have to look at where funding comes from. If you're concerned that funding may reduce, if you start focusing on people of, uh, uh, and bear in mind, you know, uh, the UK section has its board. Amnesty USA will have its board. So it, it it's difficult to know absolutely precisely. It is 
worth noting, though, that grassroots uh, activists told me, in fact, they used the term pulling teeth when describing uh, what it was like to get Amnesty on board, because right now Amnesty is very much on board of, in terms of its description of the case and the significance of, of this case. But they weren't always. They were missing in action for quite some time, to much of the chagrin of many uh, and disappointment of many people uh, including journalists who were covering the case. They said very little. They didn't really say much when uh, he was in the Ecuadorian embassy. Uh, and uh, it wasn't really until the second indictment came out that they and other establishment outlets maybe fully started to appreciate uh, the, the full threat that this prosecution and targeting of, of Julian Assange represented. But it took a lot of, of lobbying, presumably of amnesty, but also by others saying like, okay, well, uh, what do you think of the case now, now that you can see the indictment, which is, uh, you know, I would say better late than never, but it is one of those situations where the er earlier you have organized mainstream resistance, the, the, the easier it is for uh, opposition to such prosecutions to galvanize because more and more members of the general public will learn about it if if you have mainstream human rights bodies uh, like Amnesty uh, uh, or the Committee to Protect Journalists. Both them are now very much on board. But uh, why they still, despite all of that, uh, refuse to designate them a prisoner of conscience, uh, I can't say for absolute certain. Yeah, and it looks like this issue could be uh, coming to a public dispute in uh, Amnesty UK's upcoming general uh, meeting, which is planned for June 25th, because the membership uh, is calling for a greater campaign and support for Julian Assange press freedoms and the Human Rights Act, which, interestingly, the Conservative Party in the UK wants to repeal the Human Rights Act and replace it uh, with something called the British Bill of Rights, which I suspect doesn't cover as much as the Human Rights Act does. But, you know, as you have pointed out, the board the, of, of Amnesty UK is is opposed to doing that. So is, is this looking like a public fight uh, that we're going to see in Amnesty uh, UK over this issue of, of, you know, Julian Assange? It's true that Richmond and Twickenham branch members of Amnesty proposed two related resolutions. One, uh, demanding clarification for uh, uh, in relation to prisoner of conscious status. And part of the background to the resolution, they, they explicitly mentioned the, the failure to designate both Chelsea Manning and Julian Assange as a prisoner of conscience. And then uh, uh, the other resolution from the same membership, they don't unfortunately explicitly call on the board to designate uh, Julian Assange a prisoner of conscience, but they do call for increased resources and campaigning on the subject as well as on the subjects of press freedom and the, the Human Rights Act, but I think linking them together. And you're right, the board curiously seems to say, well, one, we're not quite sure that uh, uh, Amnesty, uh, that, that Julian's case and the case of the Human Rights Act, that, that working on those campaigns together, linking them would be the best idea. Uh, they don't exactly say why, but maybe they'll say in the, at the general meeting. Uh, and then uh, two, they say, well, we've already committed a decent amount of resources and there's other cases that people don't know about. We're not sure that committing more resources would make much of a difference. 
so we'll continue at the present rate. So yeah, it will be interesting to see how this uh, ends up being battled out, especially if there are other branch members who feel the same way. Uh, at the end of the day, it will come down to how much organizing the 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 memberships supporting this resolution are doing with other amnesty members. Now, when we say it will be done in public, I don't know how much in public because uh, I imagine that the meeting, I'm guessing because I've never been to an amnesty general meeting before, that the meeting will be closed to membership and the board only. So uh, uh, whether or not it spills out a bit into the press, we'll see. I haven't seen any other members of the press mention the general uh, a meeting. In fact, when I was drafting the uh, the article, there was no notification yet, and I only stumbled across it when I was doing a bit more final research just before I published the article. So I added those those quotes uh, from the general uh, uh, meeting notice into the dissenter piece. So uh, yeah, it's hoping that this will help to kind of clarify matters. My article, the dissenter, that it will help to clarify matters for people to kind of appreciate just how much Julian Assange's case satisfies all the criteria that we have seen other prisoners of conscience uh, satif- satisfy in the words of uh, in the words of Amnesty's own press releases. So I link to those all the the source material in the article. Yeah, and you know this all for me, Mohammed. I mean, it drives home a couple of things. I mean, number one, it's sort of reiterates or reaffirms the sort of profoundly political nature of uh, Julian Assange's case. And I think it also sort of evidences the the deeply political nature of a lot of these organizations, whether we're talking about the, uh, you know, professional journalist organizations or groups uh, uh, like Amnesty, you know, who uh, seem to have their sort of own, you know, political and and analytical way of really sort of uh, dealing with things that I think can sometimes, you know, come into contradictions with, when, when situations like Julian Assange rises, all due to the character of Julian Assange's work. And I don't think we can ever forget, you know, what uh, Assange's crime really is. It wasn't uh, that he was lying in his work. It wasn't that he was uh, uh, plagiarizing or fabricating anything. It was that he published some inconvenient truths uh, for some of the most powerful people in the world, uh, not the least of which was the U.S. government. You know what I mean? And so the fact that um, I think we've even reached this point, uh, I think, says a lot about really the relevance of the Julian Assange case and how it's not just about this campaign uh, against one man, which is bad enough, but because of all of sort of the attendant issues and the sort of clear potential ripple effects for journalism and I would argue for uh, uh, dissent in general here. Yeah. So, I mean, what does it say for a dissent in general? So I think one of the things that this case reflects uh, uh, is the extent to which uh, people at organizations are not immune from the representations and characterizations of situations that they see in the press. So even though theoretically a group like Amnesty or Human Rights Watch should be basing its assessments on its own ability to research on or its own contacts on the ground that it trusts and that it, it, it monitors their credibility and reliability or whenever possible has actually trained, etc. In reality, they will also be influenced by, by uh, people they know, right? I mean, the board members are just people who will know other people, the circles they hang out with, uh, uh, and the news they consume. And if the mainstream news you consume is... Um, 
is like smearing Julian Assange, which it was for quite some time, or is downplaying the significance of the case, which it did for some time. And The Guardian, despite working with Julian Assange and publishing many articles, did uh, uh, pretty much throw him under the bus, as did many other papers. Then it, I think it shows the extent to which such organizations can be influenced. And, and let's also not forget that Amnesty Sweden was shown to have been infiltrated by uh, like a journalist, a well-known journalist, supposedly lefty journalist in Amnesty, that turns out he's working with the uh, uh, security of Swedish security forces and was actively lobbying internally in Amnesty Sweden to oppose the the guarantees that um, that uh, uh, even I think Amnesty International, the the, the mother branch, as it were. But uh, also Julian Assange was asking for it. That he's saying basically uh, he agreed to return to Sweden if Swedish authorities agreed he wouldn't then subsequently be extradited to the United States, right, to address whatever the, the investigation was that was going on in Sweden, which he had stayed for, for weeks, actually longer. And then when he left, they issued an arrest warrant despite telling him he could leave. So that shows that you even have infiltration and targeting of such organizations. And it's interesting that that wasn't a bigger news story at the time. Uh, it's also been shown that the Foreign Office, recently by a colleague of mine in, in Declassified uh, UK, he published a story in Declassified based on archival research showing that the UK Foreign Office targeted the author of a report, uh, a Swedish author, uh, coincidentally, of an amnesty report back in the 70s looking at the torture of Irish prisoners and detainees and civilians uh, during the so-called troubles. So uh, there are all kinds of different angles that, that could uh, influence uh, such organizations up to and including infiltration. And when it comes to dissent, well, we see the latest national security bill that's just been proposed in the UK parliament. And we see that uh, while it is ostensibly all just about espionage, frighteningly, uh, because there's no kind of public interest defense whatsoever, it is possible uh, that uh, these charges, uh, uh, which could lead up to a life sentence, actually, for violating, could be used against somebody potentially for leaking material, because there's nothing saying, sorry, for not only whistleblowing activities, but also journalistic activities. Okay, they say you have to show you're colluding with a foreign power, but when you look at that whole section about what counts as colluding with a foreign power, uh, it could even be without realizing that a foreign power has somehow been involved. I mean, there's all kinds of, it's, it's pretty vague and broad. So, uh, uh, yeah, it doesn't say very much for the state of, of dissent in so-called Western liberal uh, representative democracies, as we're told we live in. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Mohammed, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about how liberal corporate-owned media uh, whitewash some of the right-wing Supreme Court justice picks. And we're very happy to be joined for this conversation today by Ari Paul, a contributing writer to Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, otherwise known as FAIR. Ari, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Absolutely. And 
Ari, uh, not that long ago, just a week or two ago, there was a leaked draft opinion from the Supreme Court uh, that was published that suggested that the Supreme Court was considering the overturning of uh, the Roe v. Wade case, which would, in effect, uh, make abortion illegal in the United States. And as a result, I mean, we've seen massive uh, demonstrations and protests um, around just this issue as it's a fundamental right uh, uh, for women and really, I think, uh, a matter of life and death in a lot of cases. And of course, the public sort of awaits the, the final word on this. But you recently published a piece on FAIR pointing out the fact that uh, ostensibly liberal newspapers and other platforms sort of whitewash some of uh, the more right-wing uh, justices that are currently on the bench. And correct me if I'm wrong, I believe at least three of the uh, uh, sitting justices are actually Donald Trump picks. And so, you know, just to begin, Ari, I mean, uh, what did this this whitewashing look like and why did it happen? Yeah, I think to understand why it happened, we got to sort of step back uh, a bit for a second. Um, in the United States, in sort of popular political education, the way the Supreme Court has talked about in the news, that Supreme Court is considered a very different institution from the other forms of federal government, that it is considered above politics or political, that it's um, that the sitting justices are not supposed to be uh, partisan, that they are supposed to be interpreters of the Constitution to be, and to be um, kind of nonpartisan arbiters. Um, to settle disputes and to interpret the law. And that's sort of a very fine thing to think, but it um, kind of clashes with the political reality that we are looking at. Um, back in the 60s and 70s, there were a number of Supreme Court cases um, under the uh, Chief Justice uh, Earl Warren that uh, established a lot of the kind of pro-civil rights, pro-privacy cases we often think about, Roe v. Wade being one of them. And ever since then, the conservative movement um, has been quite clear that it, it, it didn't want to have a Supreme Court um, that was handing down decisions that was uh, handing down civil rights for African Americans, civil rights for uh, gays and lesbians, and around abortion, and a, a whole other uh, host of issues. So uh, over the decades, the Republican Party has been very uh, out front about appointing judges, not just to the Supreme Court, but to the lower federal judiciary, uh, who would interpret the court uh, from a conservative point of view. And those uh, appointees have become more and more audacious over time. Um, however, that sort of prevailing idea of a nonpartisan court has kind of still governed how a lot of popular media look at the court. And so when you look at some of these pieces about um, uh, Justice Gorsuch uh, 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 during his appointment uh, and uh, Kavanaugh during his appointment um, from uh, the New York Times and Politico, there were pieces that looked at from prominent um, political, uh, from constitutional scholars, uh, so it's not nobodies, so people who know about constitutional law, people who are unabashedly liberal, uh, pointing that these uh, these candidates who were appointed by Trump and had very conservative backgrounds were either uh, very good scholars of the Constitution, that they had impeccable academic background, that they were good people to work with, that they were friendly and, and good-natured. And all those things aren't necessarily untrue. Uh, these people might have believe that and have evidence to show that. 
but don't negate that all of these justices um, had extremely conservative backgrounds and were chosen because the Republican Party knew that they would most likely uh, rule in a conservative way on a great majority of cases. And this leak uh, by Politico is proving that to be the case in terms of Roe. Yeah, you know, the the very uh, uh, nice nature of the reviews or the opinions of how these conservative justices would rule uh, in regard to Roe in particular were really, I thought, really interesting. But I think another part that Another thing that you point out in your piece that has also been very interesting that media has ignored uh, in regard to the anti-abortion movement is their constant violence. Uh, the just the characteristic of the violence of the anti-abortion movement that has been largely ignored by mainstream media when talking about uh, Roe versus Wade and the struggle to uh, maintain it. So can can you tell us about the way that the media has ignored uh, the the violence that is characteristic and has been characteristic of the anti-abortion movement? Yeah, there's been a lot of coverage in the, since the leak of a lot of the pro-choice uh, rallies, and there's been some sort of comedy where you, you had uh, uh, the Republican senator from Maine, Susan Collins, actually call 911 because someone wrote in washable chalk on her sidewalk uh, demanding that she uh, uh, support abortion rights. Um, but this really just pales in comparison to um, a record of violence against uh, abortion activists, abortion providers, abortion centers um, that is well documented in the uh, academic press, academic studies showing that uh, there had been uh, uh, hundreds of arsons, firebombings uh, targeting uh, abortion providers all over the country. Um, and that there were at least a number of murders of, and it, well, uh, certainly thousands of death threats um, and uh, constant harassment of providers, but uh, also the murder of a several providers, including especially George Tiller, who was killed in his church in Kansas because he was targeted as a uh, one of the few late-term abortion providers. Now, this isn't to say that all anti-abortion activists resort to violence, but the uh, coverage of how we got to this case um, with Roe uh, or the situation with Roe and possibly being overturned focused almost exclusively on uh, the political machinations, um, you know, running uh, pro uh, anti-choice candidates, uh, appointing anti-choice judges to the bench, and again, all those things aren't necessary. Those things are true, but they don't really show how extreme this movement has been. Um, the extrajudicial uh, uh, avenues that the movement has gone down um, to not just advance its cause, but to scare people from getting abortions or even providing abortions. And that's also inherent um, in how a post-Roe environment is going to look like. One of the bills um, that was, uh, I think it was actually even uh, passed in Georgia, but then squashed by a judge, would make it a crime to aid a woman's flight from the state of Georgia to go to a, 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 a state where abortion was legal in order to get an abortion. So there are laws being passed that wouldn't just affect women who seek abortions, but for anyone of any gender uh, who would be trying to help provide abortions. So uh, it really shows both the violent past, uh, but uh, what kind of repression 
uh, we would likely see in many places if indeed Roe is overturned. Yeah, I definitely think that's the case. And that's why, to me, I mean, it seems downright negligent uh, to sort of, um, you know, downplay or not cover this uh, kind of violence uh, to the extent that it needs. I mean, you published a piece about this uh, for Jacobin entitled The Anti-Abortion Movement's Track Record, Constant Violence. And you note um, how a group of feminists uh, were filing an amicus brief in the Dobbs versus Jackson's Women Health Organization case. And on that filing, they said, quote, acts of anti-abortion violence during the period from 1977 to 2019 include at least 11 murders, 26 attempted murders, and at least 756 threats of harm or death, 620 stalking incidents, and four kidnappings. Crimes directed at clinic facilities have included at least 42 bombings, 109 arsons, 100 attempted bombings or arsons, and 662 bomb threats. The actual numbers are likely much higher. I mean, I mean, to me, Ari, this, I mean, it sounds like uh, outright uh, a terror. And uh, what makes it even more uh, worrisome, you mentioned uh, a specific case uh, in Pensacola, Florida, which uh, happens to be my, my hometown, where it turns out that these same uh, militant anti-abortion groups are linked in with uh, white supremacists and, and other sort of white nationalists and reactionary groups um, like uh, uh, the Ku Klux Klan and others. And so I feel like there's just a number of very relevant, very concerning aspects of this as it folds into the broader abortion rights issue that I think is part and parcel of the whole thing. And I think to leave that out or to not give it its due attention is not only sort of doing a disservice to the issue itself, Ari, but I mean, could actually just be straight up dangerous if people are unaware of who these elements even are, you know? Yeah, I, I, I mean, right after the um, this horrible incident in Buffalo, uh, where a white supremacist um, who was taking his cute, you know, was using the uh, the great replacement theory that is being spouted on Fox News and by some members of the um, uh, Republican Party, um, committed this horrible anti-black terrorist crime in in, in Buffalo. It, it started to come out that you know there are parts of this end of the right that aren't just that yes they they focus on race and immigration that's their big thing but uh you're seeing more and more of these types show up at uh anti-abortion demonstrations counter demonstrations that they are part of the anti-abortion movement um largely because it's a uh, they the taking away the rights of uh women of lgbt people is part of the world that they want to create and part of the white supremacist you know, repressive world that they want. And of course, the the use of violence is something that you see in both movements. Um, but it's also uh, just another way to show that these groups sort of overlap ideologically. And that is something that is quite you know, scary when you when you look at not just what kind of laws and that they would want to enact, but the route the, the the methods to which they will use to get it yeah and then i i have to think about the way the democrats have responded to the clear and present danger 
to uh, uh, Roe versus Wade that this draft decision, this leaked decision, uh, obviously poses, and and that you know the appointment of these particular uh, conservative justices posed, even though the liberal uh, media outlets, you know, treated them with kid gloves. But I do have to to ask about the Democratic response because it seems that. There is a lot of, uh, you know, shock and, and um, um, you know, uh, uh, uncertainty on the part of the Democratic Party in what to do. And, and they have been responding this way, I think, quite honestly, for decades to what you've pointed out were the clear uh, plans of the GOP and the conservatives, uh, sp- particularly the, the Christian conservatives in this country, to do exactly what is about to happen. So, I mean, what what does the liberal media and the Democratic Party, what role do you think they have to play in the way the media has treated these issues as if they're disconnected and as if there was nothing the Democrats could have done all along to avoid us getting to this point. Yeah, I think both the, you know, with the, in what we outlined at FAIR about the uh, liberal media treatment of many of these justices when they were being confirmed and also the response that you're looking at, I think is a, it, it is a result of naivete about what the Republicans were trying to do with a lot of these justices. I think there were some people um, in liberal circles who said, who didn't really take the threat against Roe very seriously, that they believed that it was um, just rhetoric, that it was going to be used for Republican fundraising, but they wouldn't ever want to actually get rid of it outright because it's a wedge issue for them. But um, that is not really the case. I mean, when someone shows you who they are, you should probably believe them. And that the appointment of judges who have an anti-Roe track record and the appoint in the, in the, the election of Republicans who are running against um, abort, you know, people, uh, candidates who are pro-abortion is really an expression of what their political goals are. You know, there has been some progress, I think, you know, at the state level where you have Democratic states, blue states, um, you know, like my own in New York, where um, uh, there have been state level laws to protect abortion. You'll have, you know, in a post row environment, you would certainly have states, uh, the bluer states, you know, protecting abortion because of the votes to do it. But that would leave a lot of the country uncovered. And also, you know, one should also point out that a lot of reproductive justice advocates have said that Roe has been dead in parts of the uh, country for many decades. I mean, Mississippi, where this case, uh, where the leak came from, uh, has one abortion clinic uh, without federal funding, without massive funding, without actual, you know, going out there to provide care. What good is a Supreme Court president if, you don't really have a robust health system to provide reproductive care, um, you know, across the country. So, you know, there's been little responses here and there at the state level, but there is a feeling that the Republicans have kind of uh, railroaded this issue and that the um, sort of the liberal, when we say liberals, both it's the media and you know, more, you know, more mainstream Democrats have been naive about this. Um, they have responded to it as a as a wedge issue, and not with the urgency that a lot of people have you know, you know see with this issue. There has been calls that there should be a national law uh, passed at the federal level. The uh, the Democrats don't quite have the votes for it um, because they have people in their own party who are quite conservative. Um, but this just sort of uh, kind of erodes people's belief that the Democrats are 
at any point a real counterweight to Republican power. Yeah, I definitely think that's the case. And, you know, what I'm also thinking about, uh, Ari, in our last uh, couple of minutes is like this whole issue of how these uh, liberal media platforms sort of help to whitewash and basically make acceptable uh, some of the same people who, who are threatening to overturn this very important decision. I mean, what do you think that says about the reality of the politics of mainstream media? Because I think uh, most Americans think of it in the sense of, well, you have your quote unquote left uh, platforms, which, you know, we would probably just call liberal, you know, your CNNs, your MSNBCs and and whatnot. And then on the other end, you have your uh, uh, Fox News and platforms like this and see them as uh, uh, polar opposites. But I think when we look at sort of situation like this, uh, I mean, I feel like it sort of evidences something overall, not only about the politics of um, uh, journalism as we know it, but perhaps politics in this country, you know? Yeah. I mean, let's look at this example of uh, Akhil Lamar, who is a Yale professor, Yale law professor of constitutional law, who wrote in The New York Times um, that uh, Brett Kavanaugh was someone, a quote, someone with impeccable credentials, great intellect, unbiased judgment and deep uh, reverence for the laws and constitution of the United States, end quote. Uh, I mean, Amar is one of the this is The New York Times, one of the most well-read newspapers in the country. And Amar is one of the most, you know, prestigious scholars on this subject. These, this person isn't a nobody and they're not, they know exactly what they're talking about. Um, that on the one hand, like you said, at Fox News, you sort of have this drumbeat of political, of you know, driving home a, a, a political agenda through the court. And you have, on the other hand, this sort of devotion to an ideal of the institution of the court um, that sounds nice, that, oh, you have smart people coming together and they will look at the law soberly and interpret it soberly, and that's how it's going to be. And that just doesn't match the reality, the political reality that we're in. Um, you know, just uh, a couple of, uh, I can't even remember when it was, but when Stephen Breyer was being pressured to leave the court under a Democratic president so that a Democratic president could appoint his, uh, the, you know, someone to his seat, um, there was a lot of grumbling that, oh, if he were to do so, it would politicize the court, it would, it would, it would, you know, interfere with the court's apolitical nature. But for the last 20 years, we've left with an unabashed political court. You had someone like David Souter, who was, who was actually in many ways a conservative justice, threatening to leave the court. Uh, You know, it was later revealed after the Bush v. Gore decision because he believed that the the Bush v. Gore decision just sort of validated this fear that political appointees of the court, uh, the appointees of the court just acted on behalf of the party that appointed them. And that was 20 years ago. And now 20 years from now, you still it's still getting hard for places like Yale Law School, the New York Times, to understand that that is what has happened to the court. I think this leak is changing some opinions. Um, maybe it'll move a little bit. Uh, but for people who will be affected by Roe versus Wade being overturned and other cases possibly being overturned, it's a little too little too late for a lot of people. Yeah, but we thank you so much, Ari, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're moving to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back 
So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're observing the International Day Against Homophobia, Transphobia, and Biphobia. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Sputnik News analyst and transgender activist Morgan Archukina. Morgan, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And of course, Morgan, like I say, today marks the International Day Against Homophobia, Transphobia and Biphobia. And here in the United States, uh, Democrat uh, Nancy Pelosi, the speaker, uh, said that Americans should, quote, condemn vile hate uh, against the LGBTQ community and so on, saying that, quote, fight remains as urgent as ever. She says International Day Against Homophobia, Transphobia and Biphobia is an opportunity to join together in condemning the vile hate that still threatens the safety, well-being, and fulfillment of our LGBTQ friends, neighbors, and loved ones. Adding, today and every day, we recommit to rooting our uh, rooting out discrimination from our schools, our workplaces, and the very fabric of society. That fight remains urgent as ever as right-wing forces target trans students, Republican leaders threaten to unwind marriage equality, and a radical Supreme Court takes aims at Americans' most fundamental rights. Now, um, of course, Morgan, it's true that there uh, is, has been and continues to be a serious uh, right wing campaign against the LGBTQ community, something that even recently has resulted in harassment and attacks on trans people and LGBTQ folks um, in public. But I mean, also, uh, there's violence in the halls of power, because even though it's true that this has you know, been like a Republican right wing campaign, the Democrats have simply not been a real fighting force for the LGBTQ community that one would think comprised a good part of their base. And so, I mean, with all of these different dynamics sort of uh, uh, circling around this, Morg, I mean, how do you, you know, how how are you sort of seeing this year's uh, uh, International Day, uh, given the material conditions of LGBTQ folks in this country? Yeah, I'm as we've talked about, you know, uh in my past appearances on the show, you know, there there is this accelerating um pace of attacks on on LGBTQ people in the US in terms of legal attacks and also in terms of kind of what I would call um kind of in in informal, not informal, but you know, like for example in Texas you have this order from the attorney general that was not a law. He just decided that I'm going to now declare that that um, giving trans children gender affirming health care is now child abuse, and we're going to prosecute, you know, chase down parents for that and take them from their kids and stuff. Um, and that isn't a law, you know. Uh, but for Nancy Pelosi to kind of, it's this is kind of what we've seen though is as the Republicans have accelerated these attacks, the Democrats have condemned it. They've used very strong words to, you know, well, we have to stay gay. And, you know, Biden says he has the backs of trans, uh, trans children, trans people and stuff. But there's been no movement on that. The, the, the most powerful thing that they could do is to pass the Equality Act, uh, which was passed by the House last year, got to the Senate, 
and then they suddenly kind of got cold feet and they won't challenge the filibuster um, that is standing in the way in the way of so much progressive legislation. And so it's just kind of dead. And while they play politics, um, trying to get up enough, you know, lobbying money to bribe enough Republican senators to vote for this uh, bill to get to get over the 60 votes to get around the filibuster. And but nothing has happened for that with that for more than a year. And so even the the fight back against the attacks in this country is being waged primarily by the ACLU, which is an NGO. Uh, and, of course, there are other groups who are rallying against it, too. But the Democrats really aren't doing anything about it uh, other than making pronouncements. Yeah, and it's interesting that in Pelosi's comments, she mentioned the Equality Act that, you know, as you point out, they've done little to nothing to ensure passes in the in the Senate. And she also mentioned repealing don't ask, don't tell, tell, which is, you know, that's I, I think, Morgan, that the fact that the Democrats have to reach back to 1994 uh, to say anything good about their track record on fighting for LGBTQ rights, it doesn't speak well about them. Uh, and, you know, how do people fight for the rights and the humanity and the dignity of LGBTQ people when the Democratic Party clearly is not doing that? How do we do the job that the, that the Democrats refuse to? Yeah. Well, it's funny you, meant, you mentioned don't ask, don't tell, because um, 1994 wasn't when DADT was removed. That was when it was created. It was created by a Democratic administration, by Bill Clinton. It was removed, I think, in 2009 or 2011. I'm sorry. Excuse me. So it's like they give themselves credit for it, for taking getting rid of it. But they also were the ones who created it, you know. Um, so it's yeah, I mean, it's well, let me get let me give you an example of what I of, of what I think of this in the Women's Health Protection Act, the, the bill that they recently voted on and failed that was supposed to put the language of Roe versus Wade abortion rights into the U.S. law code. Right. There was uh, passages in that that were trans inclusive, inclusive of trans men and uh, non-binary people who can also get pregnant and potentially give birth. The Democrats removed those la that language in the run-up to the vote last week in an effort to woo some of the moderate Republicans and to woo Joe Manchin into voting for it. So they, they removed the stuff about trans people to, to try and make it more palatable. Now, of course, that didn't work, and Manchin still voted against it, as did every uh, uh, Republican uh, in the Senate. And that's exactly the approach that they took 15 years ago uh, with ENDA, the Employment Non-Discrimination Act. In 2008, they were afraid that, that, that not enough Democrats would vote for it because it included trans people. And they said, fine, it's, well, we're against discriminating against gay, bi, and, or, uh, yeah, gay, bi, and uh, lesbian people. But we think that you should do it, including trans people is a step too far. And the Democrats split the bill in half one for LGBT people and one for trans people, so they could try and pass the one for gay people and leave the trans one behind, and, not, and it wouldn't be weighed down. Both bills failed, and it was this massive betrayal, and a lot of queer people who supported the Democrats really backed away from them after that. What happened last week is proof that their mindset has not changed. We are disposable. We are a tool for getting votes, a tool for making themselves feel better, uh, to, to, to claim that America is this inclusive vision for all people. And then they actually do nothing to stand up for us when it, when it comes down to the wire. 
Absolutely. And I think that's also why it's so important that, you know, uh, an independent movement outside of the political mainstream really be developed to really carry through the, the fight for this that's needed. Well, we thank you so much, Morgan, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Tuesday, May 17th, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C. They can do that by calling us at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also hear us on Sputnik.mave.digital. And you can listen to our radio show live at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area on your radio dial from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time each weekday. And we are streaming for your viewing pleasure right now on Rumble at rumble.com slash C slash B A M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And uh, at the top of the hour today, we are very happy to be joined by Nefa Freeman. Coordinating committee member with the Black Alliance for Peace, organizer with Pan-African Community Action, and the host of Voices with Vision on WPFW 89.3 FM right here in the city of Washington. Nepa, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thank you for having me. Absolutely. And, you know, Nepa, I don't know about you, but I've been feeling lately like we've entered a kind of new political moment here in the United States. Things were already intense. Things were already difficult. People's conditions, the conditions of poor working and oppressed people were already worsening. But then when we look at some of these uh, recent developments, you know, to say nothing, of course, of the overarching issues of the pandemic and climate catastrophe, and uh, all these sorts of things. When we look at this uh, recent leaked draft opinion from the Supreme Court, 
which could possibly mean the overturning of Roe v. Wade, which would be a historic setback for uh, women inside the United States. It is a direct blow to uh, women's fundamental rights, which, of course, has sparked uh, uh, mass uh, demonstrations both here in D.C. and across the U.S. And we're also dealing with these recent shootings, mass shootings, not something that's characteristic of most countries on earth, but somehow the quote unquote greatest country on earth, uh, it's become a regular feature. And then of course, there's the, I'm trying to think of a stronger word than uh, abandonment, but that is what has happened with poor working and oppressed people here in the United States under this capitalist government, under this imperialist government that, you know, uh, had this strong support for this uh, uh, $40 billion uh, ticket, if you will, or, or some total of money and weapons and things to go to Ukraine. And as we've been pointing out on the show, more than likely, all this will mean is a prolonging of the war. At this point, it doesn't seem terribly likely that Ukraine can you know, defeat Russia militarily. I mean, it is funny because we're told here in the U.S. that, you know, Russia is just taking a drubbing. They're losing and so on and so forth. But for some reason, it's still uh, necessary to send all these monies, all this money and weapons. and. Even down to something as simple as feeding babies, as I'm sure people are aware, there is a serious shortage crisis of formula in the United States. Formula, formula that was already expensive, mind you. Now there is an out and out shortage crisis. And the situation of uh, the supply chain because of the pandemic and inflation, it, it already. Uh, uh, sort of exacerbated this problem of uh, baby products. And now this has gotten even worse. And interestingly, people may have seen uh, that the, I believe it's the American Association of Pediatrics has approved whole cow's milk, I believe for babies six months and younger. This was announced right as uh, people were becoming more and more aware of this shortage in formula, right? So this country, the wealthiest nation in the history of nations, the country that tells the world that it is the greatest country on earth with the best system that has ever existed, can't even feed its babies. I should say it won't feed its babies. But yet, uh, the coffers overflow for U.S. imperialism. And I, I know I said quite a bit there, Neffel, but what I'm really trying to highlight is this fact that never seems to go away. And that's that uh, the ruling class that benefits from imperialism, right? Uh, their priorities are clear. Their class sympathies are clear. And it's not with us, right? It's not with the poor working and oppressed people of this country or of this earth for that matter. And as such, I think the struggling peoples of this country would do well to develop something for themselves outside of those halls of power. Mm -hmm. I agree with you. I mean, and and everything you laid out is the logical conclusion or what's the result 
of decades of neoliberalism, the logic of it, um, what we're unfolding. And as you presented, it, there's a new t- transition, a new stage of it because of things, not only uh, of the pandemic and, and climate change and things, but the actual inept response by the rulers to those things, you know, the complete inadequate nature of capitalism to address the, the problems of humanity, of human rights of people. Um, I think that's what's happening. The, the, the word you were, the stronger word or term maybe that, that you were looking for that may, may be suffice if we say criminal neglect. Uh, the criminal neglect of you know the human rights of people. I mean, even you started one of the first things you started made me think of is uh, was the Roe versus Wade, Roe versus Wade, uh, and the return, overturning of it. Really, human rights, the human right, particularly of women, to their bodies and to you know abortion and and to, or choice. So we say choice, the human right to choice, because that's the more accurate thing, and that. Um, these things are, you know, they're depicted as this, you know, these kind of, uh, this uh, result of partisan, you know, thing that the, the Republicans being more against and all that. But, you know, Margaret Kimberly, Black Agenda Report, and also Black Lives Peace, mm-hmm. I'll point out, point out, and it was interesting because I hadn't thought about it in this, this term before, is that there, why was this human right always teetering around the uh, the power struggles around the Supreme Court. Why is it not legislation? Why is it not already law? If it was really that important, and it should be law and can be law, and you know, and so and that and that people should be focusing on making it law and not having it dependent on the will and whim of Supreme Court. You know, these these law interpreters of the law and whatnot, because you know, if you make it law, and it becomes unequivocal. You know. Now back to the point. I mean, everything you're you were describing, uh, the the criminal neglect of of people's human rights, and where this is taking us, is I mean the the funneling of all this money. And we want to be clear. I mean, because I mean, I know you know the difference, but a lot of people need to hear it spelled out. This forty billion dollar war package, uh, it's being characterized as going to Ukraine. In reality, it's going to like companies like Raytheon, it's going to the CIA, you know, in the name of trying to do something, uh, you know, liberating or, or some kind of justice for Ukraine. Ukraine's being used as a proxy. And that, you know, for a long time, it's really what we're seeing is this war, the war uh, there. Um, and people, it's interesting because we had a, you know, radio show earlier too and opened up the phone lines and hopefully people will call in here and wait in. And that some of the oversimplified oversimplified depictions or uh, characterizations of what, what happens, what, what the rulers, the, the powers that be, the media, the corporations, the ruling class, the oligarchy, is really an oligarchy, wants us to believe are very effective. And people called in, you know, they a lot of people don't aren't seeing. I mean, see through it because they're also affected by the material conditions that they're they're strapping the material conditions, and now they're not hoodwinked with thinking the gas prices are up and the, the absence of baby formula and all that is because of Ukraine because of Russia, so to speak. But they're not. But some people are. You know, there's a lot of people that are accepting the oversimplified narratives, like such as uh, Vladimir Putin just woke up one day and decided to invade Ukraine and Ukraine was just minding its business to the complete discounting or not even to the, you know, to the blind spot of the more complex historical context, the complexities in historical context that, that are involved in any kind of conflict like this. 
No conflict is that simple. No conflict is around just one person, but they have to paint this oversimplified version. They don't want us to do critical thinking and engage in. One of the last things you talk about is how do we, not only we have to survive at the same time that we have to uh, confront the adversaries of humanity. They're the adversaries of humanity. They're the criminals against humanity, the, the people, that, the, the rulers, the, the elite, the power elite that make the decisions around the, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization and, and these military African commands and shoveling money to that, you know, because that becomes now, that's the big cash cow for, for, uh, for the elite. Not only is that, it also secures the, their unfettered access to the raw materials that they want to, you know, to use around the world, that uh, they want to exploit around the world, and not uh, have it being applied to developing and solving the complex problems of our time for the benefit of the planet, when we talk about climate change, and of humanity, the working class people who are subject to the to the will and whim and obscenities of these of this class. We have to see it that way. It was interesting. The person I'll. I'll you know, and with this comment is that this person started off by saying that we were, um, they said, they kind of said, you know, we have to realize that Russia and China are not our friends. Now, it was interesting. I said, well, why did you say that? Well, it seems like you all are, uh, are siding with and you think that Russia and China are doing good. One, we hadn't even mentioned China at all. Two, there was nothing that we said. They said we agree with Russia or that we support Russia. Nothing like that. There was nothing there. But that's how the programming works. That if you speak, they, it's so insidious in how they put plant seeds and ideas in people's minds that they can come away with something that is completely despondent to what's actually being said, if that makes sense what I'm saying. And so, you know, it's very interesting. So we had to, you know, go, you know, deal with all that kind of thing. And what we, what we want people to understand first, well, maybe, let's say, granted, maybe China and Russia say they're not our friends, so, but who's the us that they're not? Are we talking about working class people, working, working class people, non-white people? And then the historical historical context, the history of it in terms of the Soviet Union, USSR, and China, that's a, that's a history that needs to be unpacked in terms of who's friends and who's not, who's on the side of liberation and who's not. And even today, if we were to just kind of step back and say maybe they're not our friends, but one thing we know for sure, I mean, people could say they're not our friends or whatever if they take this position. We One thing we know for sure is from our position, of analyzing our position, Position from the interests of uh, working class, non-white people in this country, they're not our enemies. And they are the ones that are trying to define and tell people that are who our enemies are. We can talk and give real analysis and people will come away because of their sophisticated, uh, you know, how they've been bombarding people with all types of, of propaganda. People will come away with, oh, you think, you know, that they're your friends, which means they've accepted that they're our, they're, they're, they're enemies. You know, they've accepted that they're their enemies. And for us, it's like, ain't, ain't no Russians policing our my community with military tank with tanks and the 1032 program and all that. That's not who's doing that, shooting us every day down in the street and beating us and brutalizing us, denying us uh, the economic sustenance. That's not what's happening. I mean, I'm not, I can't do anything, but whatever, you know, there's lots to be analyzed, but we have to be clear on what our material interests are and try to organize around those lines. Yeah, and you, you, you made a point that, that I think is important in terms of how people in the United States conceive of themselves and how they sort of see themselves as 
part and parcel or not part and parcel of sort of a broader global community when you talk about, well, when you say our, uh, uh, what do you mean? You know what I'm saying? And, and even when uh, th- that's what I think when, you know, people get to talking about the the war in Ukraine and the U.S.'s support for it or and I mean, you know, this is something that we've heard for years for any number of wars that the U.S. was involved in either directly or indirectly. This whole question of, well, don't we need to do something? You know what I mean? And and that's it's an interesting thing to say on a number of levels, because, again, like like who is we? Because when the U.S. sends tens of billions of our tax dollars to Ukraine or when it uh, carries out an illegal unilateral blockade against Cuba or tries to uh, carry out regime change in Venezuela or successfully, you know, helps carry out a, a bloody regime change uh, a situation in Libya and also regime change in Honduras. I mean, so many things that 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 we could name. None of that was done with our approval. Right. Like, I don't I don't know about, uh, you know, you, Jackie or you, Neff or anyone hearing this, but they never called me up and say, hey, Sean, what do you think about us uh, uh, sanctioning this country or doing this invasion or saying this drone? No, that is one of the big issues with a U.S. imperialism is that all this war, all this death and destruction is being done ostensibly in our name, but without our consent. So. I uh, am not, you know, uh, I'm not a part of it. Like, I'm not I'm not a part of that decision. I'm not a part of that uh, effort out. You know, neither me nor, you know, anyone else outside the halls of power in this country were really considered when that decisions were made because it's not our interest that uh, are being prioritized. We're told that our interests are being prioritized. Right. They're supposedly defending our um, uh, freedom and and things like that. But even beyond that, with this notion of having to do something, I mean, that is to me sort of almost a uniquely sort of American exceptionalist way of thinking. And I've heard, you know, when you watch like uh, old um, lectures of Michael Parenti, he brings this up a lot when he's like, can you imagine if, you know, uh, a, a country, let's say on the African continent somewhere, you know, just got fed up with racist police terror. And they said, you know what? Uh, You know, the descendants of this continent are subject to racist police terror in the United States. We should do something. (laughs) You know what I mean? Whatever that could could possibly mean. I mean, I mean, can you even imagine is that even something that would even be taken seriously? You know what I mean? But the only reason why it even sounds uh, logical in this case is that throughout the years, the U.S. has positioned itself as the police of the whole world pretending to care about justice and all of that, but in truth, just trying to uh, spread this uh, vile empire that now I think is starting to crumble. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. 
Phone lines now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lupemon continue to be joined by Neffa Freeman. And Neffa, before we went to the break, I was sort of commenting on how, you know, really this incessant capitalist propaganda that we're faced with really fools people into thinking that this government and the ruling class that controls it um, operate in a way that is in our benefit. And, and people believe this. They're inculcated with it because, you know, it's sort of force fed so uh, often and so constantly. And I think that's why we hear this kind of association that Americans have with their government, even when that government acts without their input. You know what I mean? Which t- to me sort of flies in the face of a country that supposedly cares about democracy. And I'm just curious your thoughts about that because it just feels like a part of maintaining U.S. Uh, imperialism is to kind of preempt uh, resistance. And a way that you do that is to basically lie to the people and make them feel as though what the U.S. is doing across the world is uh, somehow all for the good. But how do you see that? How do you see how this prop- this capitalist propaganda can actually skew the way we even think of ourselves as people and as a class? Right. I mean, it's a very good question. I think we have to start, though, with the interest in the or the history of different peoples, various peoples within the settler colony, because, this, you know, U.S. is a settler colony and, and it's predicated on the establishment of enslaved African people brought here and that whose history didn't start with that enslavement. That's important. And the indigenous people who are maligned, so it's just like Palestine or Australia or the Southern African countries who really are still under settler colonialism and, and different places. So, and that those, as, if we define ourselves absent that acknowledgement, because I think when we say, uh, if we define those absent that acknowledgement, then that's where our interests become obscured. I actually think that when we use America and Americans, that obscures it. Uh, um, you know, that the, to, to think that we're not, you know, our history begins with America and then our interests are actually so tied to it that we neglect the, the tying in our interest in other countries, particularly if like so if we're black people, we're, we have a we have a common destiny and a common enemy with black people in South Latin America and Africa and other places or, or on the continent of Europe. And so there is an internationalism that is that is uh, sidestepped around Americanism. What Michael Mex called it Americanism. And so and so I think, you know, and when we first start there and then unpack it coming up to the contemporary and material conditions and policies that are enacted now, then we can see that there are clear interests that, you know, there's that, that, that uh, we share with um, with other peoples more before we share it with the ruling classes in this country. And even those who were, you know, those who want to embrace, even if they're not, even if they are working class, but they, they embrace like these far right, uh, white supremacist type, you know, mentality, you know, people with those kind of doctrines share, they, they think this is America and they, you know, they're looking at us as, you know, and now uh, as, as the problem, right. Those, those non-white people, immigrants, everything. Now you might have, Slicksters in the ruling class, like in the, the dominate the uh, the Democratic Party, that don't say those things, but the policies in that that they enact are the same. NATO and the extension of NATO, the U.S. is a U.S. colonialism is an extension of Europe. It's not doesn't treat Africa and Asia and Latin America the same way. Monroe Doctrine for Latin America, you know, Africom and everything for for Africa. 
we're actually seeing right now they've enacted a bill countering the uh, malign Russian activities in Africa Act. They're pushing this through. All the all the progressives and the legislators, it's passed the House already, right? It's a, it's a bill that's actually going to track and, and, and what you call it, uh, level consequences around African countries who are not down with, uh, with the United States and actually monitor the influences, what they call the, the malign influences of Russia on the African continent, as if, as if the United States is doing good by Africa, after having decimated a country and drone striking Somalia and invading Somalia before and propping up dictators and all kinds. Of, I mean, as if they're their interest in what they're doing is good, but then we're supposed to believe that, that, that this is an encroachment on the sovereignty of African countries to be able to do, you know, have relations with whoever they want. We're the same thing happens with us uh, in, um, domestically in terms of this, our interests being dictated and how we secure and fight for those interests or, you know, defend those interests or resist the, the repression that we have. The same thing happens. And that the, while the, con- the what we refer to as the comprador class on the continent, those who seem to acting like they're, they're of those people, but they're actually a- acting in the interest of foreigners on the continent. That same thing happens here in the United States. All the, all the, the congressional black caucus members and all these, not, not all of them, but the ones who really, well, most of them, I mean, they have to embrace Americanism just to be part of that, are operating as if the United States is this benevolent force in, in, in domestically and externally. You have all of them voted for this thing. Even the squad, the so-called progressive squad, voted for this countering thing and also the other bill that we were talking about for Ukraine. So we're seeing a rightward shift and an erasure, I mean, or, or, or not erasure, but a an undermining of anything that's that's more radical and more challenging to neoliberalism and imperialism. And so I think, you know, that's my thinking. We have to have a Pan-African, as African people, we have to start with Pan-Africanism, but also an internationalism and a human rights, a people-centered human rights framework that doesn't, that understands that African people aren't the only ones oppressed, black people aren't the only ones oppressed, and we have to forge connections with all oppressed people, and we have to look at the class analysis of it as well, but it it also means that we have to see that the dialect that what's diametrically opposed to that is Americanism. I mean, in the material sense, not just people, you know, spouting off overtly that I hate black people. I'm going to go kill the N words or, you know, whatever, that kind of thing. Not, it doesn't have to be that overt. It can be people who claim to be against that, but they're, they're in power and they enact policies that are to the detriment of us that are, you know. Yeah. I mean, you know, not for it. And as the midterms are coming up, I I can't help but but think about all of these Democrats, um, like uh, 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 what's his name, Gregory Meeks, who actually I think sponsored this bill to uh, attract these malign activities of for of Russian influence in Africa. Now he uh, the 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 black guy from New York. Uh, who's the Democrat, sponsored this bill uh, to basically find a way to punish African nations who choose to do business with Russia uh, because the U.S. has been so great for their partnership. I mean, I can't help but but think of all of the Democrats who are going to produce all of these campaign ads ahead of these midterm elections talking about how folks need to vote for Democrats to keep the Republicans from stripping away our freedoms. But none of these Democrats have an answer for what they haven't done for the people. Like in this very moment, we were talking earlier about the the baby formula shortage. And, And I I don't know why this blows my mind so much that that 
people are literally more angry at the home recipes that people are suggesting that, I mean, I survived on, that that my parents survived on at some point, you know, a, a whole lunch, other, a bunch of other people did at some point when mommies couldn't produce breast milk and they couldn't afford formula. I mean, they, the Democrats have no answer for how they allowed this to happen. But then there's also not the conversation about how baby formula is even monopolized. Like there is a baby formula racket in this country because three corporations produce almost all of the baby formula. How is that, how is that not a part of the conversation? How, how is no one politically held responsible for one of the major companies that produces baby formula being able to avoid regulations to keep that formula safe? I mean, the Democrats have no answer for that. The Democratic Party, under the leadership of Joe Biden, is about to start rationing COVID vaccines because they claim they don't have enough money to keep producing vaccines on demand that people want and need, but they're giving $40 billion extra dollars to Ukraine. So, I mean, when we look at the immediate material conditions of people right now, not even like esoteric issues that we, we wish would happen, like canceling student loan debt, just the fact that everybody else now, in addition to poor people who always suffered from a baby shortage formula because um, that stuff was too expensive for regular folks, the Democrats have no answer for people's material conditions right now. So I'm wondering how they think they're going to survive the midterms with this message of only we had to give all your baby formula money, your COVID vaccine money, your booster money, along with your, you know, student loan debt money to Ukraine. I don't think that's going to fly. I don't I don't know how you feel about it, but I think it's going to be a disaster. Oh, yeah. It's not flying. I mean, I think the, the opinion polls for the Biden administration are constantly going down. So and I have to I have to remind myself, too, because when we, when we watch the propaganda we're bombarded with, we I sometime I let me just speak for myself, sometimes make the mistake of assuming everyone's swallowing the hogwash. And because we're seeing that, you know, and we don't realize that there's people who looking at it critically just like me and just like, you know, and so it's not going to fly. But the one thing is that it's not just the Democrats that don't have an answer. It's the ruling classes, both Republican Democrats, and that the new and that what they're doing is new. Well, we, I mean, we throw these terms around neoliberal logic. In other words, they, they have. The, everything is about uh, the, the, the things have to be in the hands of conscious, the, the corporations and whatnot. And so when the things are in the hands of the corporations, the corporations have one thing, the bottom line is a mass profits. And so that concentrates wealth. That's primary over people and the planet. So when you have a socialist system, every everything is different. You know, you have everything ordered. I'm not, it doesn't mean it's perfect, but it's more definitely superior, much superior than capitalism and neoliberalism and the stage of neoliberalism. Liberalism now to concentrate and everything is about their their solution everything austerity and and privatization and all that that's what you know neoliberalism basically is we were just we just came from Cuba and that there was this dynamic presentation given by scientists in their biotech industry but one of the one slide and you remember this Jackie the one slide that they showed us showed how little that Cuba spends on their health care but yet their 
their uh, their health, the health, the, the health, the national health of the country is on par with the United States. The United States spending astronomical amounts unnecessarily on health care. Most of it to buttress the private, the pharmaceutical, uh, and the uh, and the and the insurance companies and all that kind of stuff. Not really anything that's going to actually giving health care to people, right? And so everything is that like that. And that's just health is just health is just one example of this very skewed and what we call reactionary, basically reactionary. So when like you say, how can they expect to win in the elections? They can't. I mean, they, the only, uh, the only, they have no other choice but to go the route they're going. You know, and in, in, in their effort, their feeble efforts to fight. You know, this by this partisan thing. Because any what really needs to happen, the only thing that really can happen would be something that's not so uh, capitalism. They would have. They would actually kind of, you know, be committing political suicide, if you will, or even in class suicide, if you will, if they did what really needed to be done. And so we have to look at them as, you know, the ruling class that is the adversary of humanity, and we have to figure out how to organize along those lines. That's the answer to it. That we can't vote it out, you know. And if we, that doesn't mean we can't use the electoral process as a means to build the movement necessary. It just means we can't be voting for no Democrats and Republicans. And then what we do in the electoral process, electoral use of it has to be very strategic and we have to do a block and we have to, you know, really uh, be organized around that, not just having individuals pulling levers for people, but they have to be part of a concerted movement and, and, and sophisticated movement. But that's, you know, that's, yeah, that's how we, we have to understand like the dynamics of, of what, and I know you do, I'm not talking to you, you, you're basically laying out um, what we need to be concerned with and how we need to be seeing it. But yeah, that's my response. Yeah, definitely. And I appreciate you raising um, the 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 issue of Cuba and healthcare there and actually the great contributions to humanity that Cuba has made in terms of medical science. I mean, you know, the doctors that Cuba has sent all around the world for years. I mean, you know, since, you know, since around the time of uh, uh, the the revolution. And, you know, you fast forward to today when there are Cuban doctors being sent around the world to help treat uh, the coronavirus. The, the, the U.S. corporate media said that they were victims of human trafficking and that they were actually being subjected to uh, a form of slavery. So you see the the attacks here never stop. And it shows. And I think that goes directly to your point, Nefo, about just the different character, the fundamentally different character of a socialist system and and, uh, a capitalist system in the United States, where although there are far more resources, like you say, these go to really sort of buttress capital and to help this uh, effort of maximizing profits, which is the point of the uh, the capitalist system. And oh, by the way, there's a million people dead uh, from the coronavirus here uh, in the, the U.S. as well. And so, again, when the U.S. likes to you know, uh, uh, make all this noise and, uh, uh, you know, puff out its chest about supposedly being the greatest country on earth. I mean, I think that the actual state and conditions of its uh, poor working and oppressed people tell quite a different story. And I also appreciate you raising NEFA, uh, this countering malign Russia activities in Africa, Act because I mean, it, it's just so ridiculous. And I think it shows that U.S. imperialism is you know, it, it's as petty as it is cynical, transparent and violent, because this is obviously just a punishment for these different uh, uh, governments for not, you know, acting like good little colonies and going along with uh, what the U.S. 
and the West want. I mean, as soon as I saw this, I immediately thought about how uh, the U.S. uh, now all of a sudden, you know, is concerned about human rights abuses in India because India is not going along with Washington as it pertains to Ukraine either. And so as much as the United States wants to make it seem like the quote unquote international community is in lockstep on this, in truth, it's, you know, the U.S. and its junior partners and and vassal states that uh, are sort of the strongest on this. And while a number of the other countries uh, most of which are in the global south and on what we call the 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 periphery, right? Had their own sort of view of it, uh, and for and in a lot of cases they were uh, neutral on the on the situation, right? And right. so even even looking uh, at that, it it just shows that. You know, the U.S., it, it, it can only handle complete obeisance and capitulation. It's, it has no interest, actually, in uh, countries and governments advocating for their own interests. Now, if those interests dovetail with those of the U.S. by chance, then fine. But the U.S., and more specifically, the U.S. ruling class, is only out to enrich itself, only out to give itself even more power and even more wealth to the detriment of the masses of people in this country um, and and uh, around the world. And uh, therefore, it, it sort of complicates this picture that the U.S. tries to put forth. Like basically everybody agrees with uh, the U.S. government. And so I think it sort of reveals sort of uh, the real nature of U.S. imperialism, not as this uh, crusading force that's going to uh, right the wrongs of the world, but in truth, a a weapon of the bourgeoisie, of the capitalist class that is more than willing to fight Russia down to the last Ukrainian if it means that U.S. world hegemony can remain in place for just a moment longer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I, I, what you said you were talking about, the, there's the, I don't know if people know about the, the United Nations vote. Um, was it in March? I can't remember. And the a lot of the countries, like in the global south, they abstained. Some of them voted no. Eritrea, Zimbabwe, were like, nah, we're not. You know, we're, that's not. We're not going to vote yes for this condemnation of Russia and they, you know, and and but they portray it in the media and they talk about the international community. When they talk about the international community, they're talking about Western European states. I mean, that's kind of what it is. You know, it's a euphemism for that. And it kind of goes back to what you were discussing before about also consenting, uh, uh, conferring with the people. This is not this country is not a democracy. They call it that. It might be a democracy for the ruling class, but in general, it's not. It's an oligarchy. It is an oligarchy. This term was being used, they started putting out when Russians, and they talk about oligarchs in Russia. They don't want to talk about systems of oligarchy because then that makes, that brings up a whole lot of other critical thing. But I don't know how you can talk about oligarchs and not talk about an oligarchy. You can only have oligarchs within an oligarchy. And this is an oligarchy. It's a, it's a country run by the rich for the rich in their interest. And so when they start, uh, when, when we when we start talking about what's in our best interest in Cuba, you know, and they, and they this is interesting. They turn reality on its head all the time. So Cuba and other countries that have national referendum now, not just voting for individuals but for representatives and municipalities or you know even sectors of society, but they have national rights to national referendum. U.S. don't have that. We don't have any national referendum. We can't say well don't. 
you know, put more money into the drone, uh, beefing up the military in Somalia, which is happening right now. You know, they're reversing the Trump stuff and, and putting 500 troops Biden just to prove put the 500 troops back in Somalia that they had, the Trump had taken out, de-escalating the issue there. You know, they just approved that. And then no, nobody can say, okay, you know, how do we determine these things? What about the $40 billion? How do we have the, you know, uh, discussions, debates at the length and breadth of the country and then take the overarching decisions in those debates and then make them, uh, have them inform what policy is. I mean, make it be policy or even have people go to a vote after they discuss it. You know, this is what happens in other countries. The countries that are determined, uh, condemned as dictatorships, they have these processes. I mean, they people can argue and say they don't work well or whatever, and then the they, but they don't exist here. They do not exist here. No people, decisions are made in the name of the people all the time that are completely adverse to the interests of the people. And so, and instead, we get propaganda bombarded with propaganda. So even if and the propaganda is so thick that even if you get turned over a vote and a decision to people tomorrow, they make the wrong decision because they haven't had the the opportunity, the privy to discussions and historical context and debate that kind of refines what we know and how we feel our positions about things. Right. So we're bombarded with you know we're bombarded to think that things are happening in our interest, and if we were given the opportunity to make those decisions as a a mass, to vote, we'd be ill-equipped to do so. Yeah, I mean, I I feel like that's actually the case, and I think what you were talking about, explaining how the the people contribute to policy in Cuba, that is democracy. That is literally what democracy is, where Cuba and countries like it have a, a true democratic government. But the reason that the we believe the politicians in this country who continually demonize Cuba and Venezuela and Nicaragua and other countries like it as being run by dictators is because we have no input into the policies that politicians decide upon from the top down. They decide they get together in their little you know, Congress of millionaires and decide who they're going to steal from. Uh, what other country they're going to abuse and violate their human rights and what they're not going to do for us. And then they tell us, well, this is what you well, this is what we voted on. We don't we don't have any input into any of the decision making um, regarding the policies that this government produces. So us not understanding that just in the way that this government operates and is designed to operate is not intended to produce a democratic result. It's not a democratic system. Makes it so much easier for people in this country to believe the lies about, oh, you know, Nicolas Maduro is a dictator and, and you know, uh, Fidel Castro was a dictator and, and you know, uh, Diaz-Canel, he's a dictator. We we. It's so much easier to, to believe that other countries' leaders are dictators when we don't understand that, but that we are actually ruled by a dictatorship of oligarchs right here in this country today. Yeah. I mean, if, if people didn't, if the, 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 uh, anyone who's up there, if they didn't have money or weren't, or weren't backed by rich, we wouldn't even know their name. We wouldn't know who they are. 
you know, anybody that speaks, I mean, everyone's vetted. They vet everyone who's running. So you don't even get to hear any radical. That's why the the, the, the debates and all that kind of stuff is, is confined. They want to make sure that people don't hear alternative views, anything that's rational makes sense. And we have to say also not just the state, but the extensions of the state, the corporations and whatnot, like, for example, the media. The media is used to to put out propaganda. And now there's a new era of the social media corporations. These are corporations that are doing the bidding that complete cahoots with the with the state and the and the ruling class to to keep bombarding the world, but particularly in the United States with propaganda. And they have operations and and, and campaigns that are meant to buttress false information and, and support their interests and have people support their interests. They're also involved in censorship. They're censoring. I mean, y'all know that. Y'all, y'all not, I can't. I don't even have to tell y'all about the censorship that's going on with these with these groups. So they're really confining the the space in which we're able to uh, know the information, have access to information, and what's being determining what's acceptable to be to 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 be said. Um, and so, yes, yeah, you know, it's it's, it's very what, what's happening is a rightward shift. And then we have to actually. It's a rightward shift in terms of what's the predominant messaging and the loudest voices. And I think there's there are voices on the ground, and like we said, the material conditions actually determine people have to look at those in terms of how they're living. But we don't really hear from the people. But we also have to talk about the nonprofit industrial complex and those you know, like the liberals that depend on on that, even and especially the ones who are seen to represent the most progressive voices. They're actually now they're actually making a right shift too, you know, and, and it goes into our theory of change and what must be done. People are are dependent on and relying on uh, change and the things that need to happen to those who have power to make decisions and create legislation and and say the right things. We depend on that. We people did, not we, but a lot of people the, the the radicals and revolutionaries don't. But a lot of people think that's how you do it. You you get you leverage influence and people they confuse that with power a lot. It's not power. You're influencing the people who have power to make the right decisions when they in fact are the adversaries of the world. So nonprofits do it. They have to be. They have to get their foundation money. So they also are not going to say anything or do anything. And so you can see it demonstrated. Like for example, and I didn't. I, I mean, I'm not trying to throw you know unnecessary shade or be a hater. But you you see campaigns like uh, the, the the poor people's campaign, and they're actually talking like the Ukraine. Uh, you know, shoveling money to Ukraine in the military operation is acceptable. And in as they are supposed to be walking in the footsteps of Dr. King, who was uh, principally against militarism and imperialism in all forms. And so they don't, you know, while they're like one. And so this is a, and then you also see it in the squad. You know, I mean, we already mentioned that already, them actually voting for things and not speaking out against this. Even the Africa thing, you know, you got people, uh, one one congresswoman is African. And it's like the, one of the most pointed attacks on the African continent is from the country that she's from drones and all that. But it's actually seen as maybe at best misguided policies, but for the right reasons. Well, me, I mean, that's just ludicrous. It's not. It's ludicrous. There's nothing misguided about it. They know what they're doing. It's about extension, full spectrum dominance. And if people can't, any legislator, people in power, positions of power to make those kind of decisions can't see that, they're not fit to be in the position they're in. In terms of um, like the Poor People's Campaign and their stance on Ukraine, and it makes me think about you know what we often discuss on the show in terms of 
the need to build uh, a mass movement of poor working oppressed people with uh, a true people's platform that I personally think will have to, uh, at some point, include sort of a very clear kind of anti-war and and anti-imperialist plank. And so I just think sometimes about, excuse me, what it means to be, you know, in, 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 in movement with people in this way, because I mean, you know, Neff, I know you and Jackie both are aware that, you know, when it comes to, you know, building coalitions and trying to build movement, it's often the case that you're sharing space with people who may not be in lockstep with you on uh, this or that issue. And the issue at hand is sometimes rather important. And I would say that the issue of uh, U.S. imperialism and the funding for the military industrial complex is an important issue. But also, you know, the Poor People's Campaign to me, I think is really quite valuable because I feel like more than any other sort of, uh, if you want to say social justice group or movement group, in the U.S. of a kind of national stature. I feel like they've done some of the best work sort of articulating and quantifying and, you know, explicating some of uh, the bare facts about the conditions of poor and working class people uh, uh, here in the United States. And so, you know, this, I think, is is a valuable platform with uh, a lot of potential, particularly in uh, a, a moment such as this. And I also think back to the conversation we had not long ago here on the show about, you know, what it means to meet people where they are, which is something that we hear a lot of organizers say. But, you know, as we noted then, uh, I think a lot of times they actually end up leaving people right where they at while thinking they're meeting them where they're at. They're leaving them. You know what I mean? So I think it's generally true because of the same capitalist imperialist propaganda that we've been talking about that the overwhelming majority of uh, the American people may uh, uh, feel a similar way. So I just always have a question of, you know, what does it mean to, to be in movement with people and still carrying through, uh, you know, uh, pushing these uh, kinds of politics And sort of making the connection for uh, uh, what it all means, because, you know, I feel like ultimately if we're talking about coalition work, then we have to think seriously about, well, how do we reach a higher level of unity that uh, is only going to strengthen what we're doing? And so when it comes to questions like this, Nefa, I just feel like, you know, it's important to sort of, you know, think about what it could mean for the movement writ large, movement forward, if that makes sense. And I, and I don't mean to disparage good work that people have done and then value invaluable work, because I think that's one of the things that things that are more in the research and think tank and policy realm. They do. They give us the information that we need to analyze and assess situations, the statistics and whatnot. Um, I mean, Kwame Ture often said it's like you, some of these things, are, they're good for information, but not necessarily analysis, because we need because what comes with them, we need actually analysis that says that we have to get power. We have to exercise. We have to organize for power and and to actually uh, outline who the adversaries for power are, the people in power that don't have any. And, but so, so it's not, you, I agree with you that we need to value, uh, that, uh, be, recognize the value 
in groups and in building coalitions, but at the same time, how do we, when we're building coalitions, what are the principles of unity that we're operating on? One should be, and I think we all share this, should be, it needs to be, it's not, we, reformism is not the way. Reformism leaves the people, the power, the, the elite, ruling elite, and their agents and, the, and legislators intact. So they're supposed to be expected to implement policies and reforms that make everything better for people. That's not how it works. You know, they're going to continue to do, they might do tweaks and things here that seem to make it better, but overall, they're not going to want a radical, the radical transformation that's needed. So we have to build a bottom-up thing that the, the working class people, that m- many people, classism makes us think they're not qualified to make decisions about, about their lives and about what happens, but that's some elitism right there. We need to be in creating community, localized people's assemblies and formations that garner the, the resources, the minimal resources we have together to to for survival and the and the and the as the face of the oppression the ruling class levels against us and at the same time use that coming together that that those formations and that organizing to organize in a broader sense to establish the principles in which any kind of coalition should be ordered on that are really in the interest of the ruling class the I mean the working class and the working class and and people of color working class can define those better than anyone especially when we are have access to political education and we're involved in political education and discussions of our interests and that those those who are you know writing the writing these uh doing this research and everything that's their role but they have to submit to the to the creative genius and the and the understanding and the and the, uh, that comes from people informed by that information and that who are really the most oppressed of the oppressed and so that that's where that organizing has to come from there it has to be two tiered and we have to create what we call what we refer to as dual power dynamics where people are we're creating structures and structures and things like that that are a power base with the limited stuff we have that that challenge the, the illegitimacy, really, that the create the shows that expose the illegitimacy of the other power structures that are that are governing and the institutions that are that are dominating our lives. So we have to create parallel institutions that's dual power, and that that's the so we all have to belong to organizations, and that we have to create the environment that makes the liberals standing in liberalism make make a decision. You got to make a decision. Are you with this radical transformation we're building and you want to contribute your resources and all that to that? Or you want to help the Bidens and the Democratic Party stay in power and, and always depict things, white supremacy, and this really, uh, you know, opaque type of uh, type of way? You know, uh, you know, we want to really say, do we really want a revolution or not? Do we really want socialism? You know, they don't use socialism. They And I've heard some, and I'll be quiet after this, I'm hearing some even use terms like decolonization, but they don't want to identify the colonizer. And they don't want to talk about no, if you ain't identifying no colonizer, you can't decolonize. I was just thinking uh about uh the sign one of the signs that we saw in Cuba on a uh, on a billboard uh, billboard that literally said socialismo o muerte, socialism or death. And I'm saying, man, if we're not about <laughs> pursuing and fighting for a better system in this country where we cannot say, look, either we get the system we want or, yes, we are going to give everything that we have fighting for it. I don't think we're serious. And it was just weird seeing that that sign in Cuba, you know, and, and then coming back, Netfa, 
And seeing the Biden administration doing exactly what the Obama administration did, lifting the travel restrictions and lifting the restrictions on remittances, but then, you know, giving this like backhanded insult, well, you know, Cuba has to do better with pursuing its democracy, but it's the 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 entity that's denying democracy to Cuba is the United States. So it's like we, we're in a moment where the, the Democratic Party, the folks who are in power are making these half-step reformist measures that look good. But I think we have to do exactly what you're saying. We have to be clear to point out that, no, this is this is a PR game they're playing and they're covering up a lot of imperialism that, that they're still committing. Yeah, a lot. And, uh, you know, just in the last couple of minutes, I mean, I think what we're talking about in terms of really sort of spreading and really developing uh, an anti-imperialist consciousness, I think will have to be a part of a process of developing a, a working class consciousness in the United States. I mean, I think these things go hand in hand. And that's, uh, I think, a big task is the fact that I think uh, class consciousness amongst uh, poor working people in this country is pretty low. And the class consciousness amongst uh, the ruling class, amongst the capitalists, is really quite high, which is precisely uh, uh, why or a big part of why uh, the capitalist class is able to uh, so effectively and efficiently make its will uh, manifest. It's organized, centralized and class conscience. And I think on the part of the struggling people of this country, we'll have to mirror that kind of structure to not only bring about a, a, a society here in the U.S. that is actually based around our material uh, needs. Um, not only that, but uh, also sort of understanding what precisely it means to have uh, this new system and what that's going to look like and how it should be developed. And there's no shortcut to this. I mean, things can change quickly, but at the end of the day, and I think we can agree on this, it's uh, 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 got to be a part of a consistent and intentional effort to do this kind of movement building because to be frank and just to put it shortly, I mean, you know, uh, workers uh, uh, make the world run. And in my humble opinion, workers should run the world. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Neffa Freeman, so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.